0: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Charles Adele. Unlike some of the other interviews I've done for this series, this interview focuses very heavily on the military side of the conflict. At the end of the day, the Spanish Civil War was a military conflict, and the military side of the story does deserve some attention. One of the interesting items that we discussed was how a seemingly small decision at how military units were organized within the Republican Army would have consequences that caused issues for the Republican political leaders far outside of the military context and far away from the front lines. I hope you enjoyed this interview, because I know I enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Adele. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm here with Dr. Charles Adele, the author of many works, but most relevant to our discussion today, The Spanish Civil War, A Military History. Dr. Adele, how's it going today?
2: Oh, well, about as well as it ever goes in 2020. Um, I had a, a text from one of my students, uh, well an ex-student the other day, doing a PhD, and um, said he felt that doing a PhD was, was like being in an existential wasteland. Uh, to, to that I could only, only respond that, that for all of us, whatever we're doing, 2020 is an existential wasteland. Um, I'm looking forward to 2021. Yes. So am I. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, But anyway, onwards and upwards, at least I have history to occupy myself with. Mm -hmm. Um, So
1: we're here today to talk about the Spanish civil war. And so when we think about the Spanish civil war, uh, I think there is a tendency anytime we're dealing with a conflict to put hard dates on things, especially the beginning of conflicts. Uh, when I read about the beginning of the civil war, it seems like chaos. Uh, did people around Spain know that a civil war had started, uh, you know, on July 18th uh, when it did?
2: Well, no, nobody... To start off with, no, nobody was really expecting a civil war as such. Um... What the what the conspirators were hoping for would, would be a, a takeover across Spain, um, a united turnout by all the garrisons of Spain, and of course um, the Spanish colonies in Morocco and so forth, um, and it would just be a takeover, it would be a coup. Um, and it would be alright, there might be some trouble from socialist communists and the like, but they'd be put down within a matter of days. Um, and I don't think the socialists and communists and anarchists and so forth ever really thought in terms of a civil war. Um, what they thought would happen would be that the, the, the people would rise up en masse, there'd be general strikes, Spain would be paralysed, and the crew would collapse. I don't think anybody expected the two and a half years of civil war that followed. Um, so in, in that sense, civil war came as a surprise. Um, and meanwhile, there was a tremendous amount of confusion. Um, it, it, the, 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 plot didn't take place all at once. I mean, the, the sort of risings, I mean, the first one is, um, the, it begins in, in fact the evening of July the 16th, um, in Morocco, um, and then spreads to the, the rest of the Moroccan garrisons on the 17th, um. And then you've got risings in mainland Spain on the 18th and the 19th. So things are going off all all over the place all the time. All sorts of rumours were flying around. Um, The government was frantically broadcasting disinformation. Um, For days and days, the the government kept saying, there's nothing happening, there's nothing happening. Oh, well, there is something happening, but it's only a little local difficulty. And and of course, what they were doing was a perfectly legitimate tactic and sensible tactic. What they were frantically trying to do was to persuade would-be rebels that the coup was a failure, that there was no coup to join. Um, and funnily enough, I mean, uh, I, I remember vividly the night of the twenty-third of February, nineteen eighty-one, which is the last attempted coup in Spain's history. Um, and I can remember. Uh, I was in London, London, as it happens, but I remember uh, tuning into Radio Cadena, uh, which was one of the leading Spanish radio stations, independent stations, and it was quite surreal. It was very, very much like 1936 in in that you had this sort of light Europop music tinkling away, and then every so often the, the announcer would say, you know, everything is quiet, everything is calm, you know, there's no need to panic, everybody should stay in their houses. And of course, what they were scared of was, just as the government was in 1936, was that the left would pour onto the streets and provoke a lot of army officers who were in fact neutral into joining the uprising. So there was a huge amount of confusion.
1: Um, so when we're talking about these, these garrisons sort of uh, joining in the revolt, I guess you might call it, um, how did they find out what was happening? What, were officers that were in charge of these garrisons, you know, did they get information from military sources and then, you know, do whatever they felt they needed
2: to do? Well, the, the conspiracy um, was the work of national organizations basically what happens is that from fairly early on in the Republic there had been a number of officers who were determined to um, overthrow the Republic by force. But when you say a number, it's only a very small number actually. Um, Most officers were neutral and there were in fact uh, they might they might privately have monarchical ideals, but they were they were prepared to work with the republic, and there were in fact quite a number of republican officers. So you have this uh, little group, and it organises itself in something called the Unión Militar Española, the Spanish Military Union. And by the end of nineteen thirty-five, yes, it's got adherence in many places, its numbers have been growing, but it's still by no means the majority of officers. Then you have the elections in of February 1936. That produces um, a conspiracy among the generals, many of whom had not been members of the Spanish military union. They obviously get in touch with rebel subordinates, and so if you like the germ of rebellion spreads ever outwards uh, uh, amongst Spain's garrisons, you know, military, uh, military units, police units, um, the Navy, the Air Force to for a much more limited extent, and of course the Moroccan garrisons.
1: Um, so, so you mentioned the Moroccan garrisons, and sort of at the beginning of this, uh, the conspirators have a problem. They need to get troops from Africa into Spain. Um, was there a? Do you think there's a real possibility of Republican forces sort of preventing these troops from getting into Spain? Uh, I know that there's like the much discussed assistance of German and Italian transport aircraft involved at this point. Um, is, was there a chance that this could have ended um, early on at this stage by the conspirators not being able to get people from Africa to Spain?
2: Yes, it's entirely possible. The Republicans had massive naval superiority, particularly um, in the area around the Straits of Gibraltar. The Spanish Navy basically has two main um, depots, if you like, two main, two main ports. Um, one is uh, La Coruña, which is, or rather to be precise, El Farol, which is next door to it, which is right up in the northwest of Spain. And the other is Cartagena, which is down in the southeast of Spain. Now, in Cartagena, you had the, um, the submarines, the destroyer flotilla, and and most of the cruisers. Up in the northwest, you essentially only had the just one old one, one of the battle the old battleships that had been left to Spain and a couple of new heavy cruisers, which are just coming up. were just coming on stream, and what happens is the, the, the Republican cruisers and destroyers sally out, or at least some of them do, they, they, they blockade the, the, the straits. But then a combination of heavy cruisers coming down from the north, or one in particular, um, and fear of the air, uh, that means they turn around and scuttle back to port. Now, had the, the the republican fleet shown more aggression shown more staying power it's difficult to say what would have happened but it's possible possible that the 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 the, the rising could have been bottled up um even with with air power um the number of, of the german and italian air, air power the number of troops who could be shipped across by air It was not very great. Um, And the majority actually end up going by sea. But they're able to go by sea because air power, the judicious application of air power, um, has terrified the Republican fleet and made it decide to stay in port, basically.
1: And so it sounds like the majority of the Spanish Navy uh, sort of remained
2: loyal to the Republic, though. It depends what you mean by the Navy. Um, The officer corps was overwhelmingly nationalist, Um, unlike the the Air Force. The Air Force was overwhelmingly Republican. Mm -hmm. but The the Navy was overwhelmingly nationalist, but what happens is that the situation on a warship in the aftermath of the coup was very different from the situation in most towns and cities um if you imagine warships at a period very cramped, confined conditions very little very little need to to display any tactical competence it's you know it 's all about how many men can you uh, can you get together to rush a stairway mm-hmm. you know and and you don 't need very many because because the stairways are very narrow <laughs> you know I e mean, equally i suppose you don't need very many men to block them. Um, but what happens is that the the officers rise in revolt and in um, the destroyers and the flotillas, uh, sorry destroyers and the, the light cruisers and the submarines and so forth the, the crews revolt against their officers and and either kill their officers or take them prisoner and take over the ships now with the, with the heavy vessels up in the northwest um, at the orders of the government. They put out to sea and head for Morocco um, to show a force and also blockade the straits. Whilst they're at sea, um, their officers um, revolt. The crews immediately counter-revolt, turn on the officers, take over the ships, turn the ships around and and go back to to El Farol and find that they sailed into... A nationalist stronghold perfect let's I mean, it's go back to confusion and,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so of course they're they're overwhelmed and and the ships are just taking over so um you know very good example of a of a very very messy story um and you know frankly a very bloody one um Uh, Little mercy was shown to rebel officers on the one hand, and certainly little mercy was shown to the crewmen who took over the the battleships and cruisers and so forth up in El Farol and um, fell into national hands. When looking at sort of the
1: fighting that develops um, as the the two sides sort of, as it becomes a, a legitimate civil war and sort of both sides' militaries are increasing, one of the early focal points is Madrid. Um, now, uh, Franco, I know, supported an attack on the city, but some others uh, sort of on his side did not. Do you think that the failure of Franco and his forces to take Madrid was kind of a decisive turning point in the next, and what extended maybe the, the Civil War?
2: As soon as you get into sort of speculative history, obviously mm-hmm. you're in you're the in realm of uh... Um, believe it or not speculation Mm -hmm. um first of all it was it was always assumed in the Nationalist high command that madrid was one of the places where they might have a problem um there were conspiratorial elements in the city and it was expected that they would rise and revolt it was also expected that they wouldn't be strong enough to take over the city. Um, and so the, 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 the idea was that they would hole up in their barracks or whatever and wait for relief columns that would, that would converge on Madrid from all points of the compass. Now, as it happens, the garrisons in Madrid were suppressed very, very quickly and um, there was nobody to relieve but even so, the the, the basic idea remained in in, in in play. I mean, the capital is an important place. Let's go and get it. So, um, almost the only offensive action which the nationalists engage in. Um, there there are a couple of small campaigns up in the north, which aren't unimportant. But, um, but you know, the major effort, as far as the nationalists are concerned, um, is once they've actually joined up their various bits of territory, um, basically by advancing up the Portuguese frontier, um, expanding their holdings in Andalusia, yes, Madrid becomes the prime objective, and, and Franco famously marches on Madrid. Um, this incidentally um, is where you get the origin of the word, of the phrase fifth column, because um, you know, Franco um, I believe it was General Mola, who said this, who was, um, he was actually the chief brains behind a conspiracy, commander in northern Spain, and he said, well, there are four columns of troops marching on Madrid, and there's a fifth column inside the city waiting to take over. So that's where you get the fifth column from. But anyway, um, so Franco and company march on Madrid. Um, obviously, send the the majority of their striking forces to attack the city. Now, um, there's there's an important decision that should be talked about, uh, because I think this is probably more important um, than than the way you originally phrased the question. Um, Franco diverts um, from the direct road to Madrid. Um, He diverts off to the right, off to the southeast, if you're looking at the map, to go and relieve the garrison, nationalist garrison, which had been holding out in the centre of the city of Toledo since the beginning of the war. Tremendously photogenic, telegenic situation. Um, anybody who knows Toledo um, will instantly recognise the the qafa Anybody who knows the city of Toledo knows that it's dominated by this enormous renaissance castle called called the Alcatha. You know, you you can see it for miles, sticks up above the whole city, dominates the whole city. The nationalists had barricaded themselves inside this fortress. A fairly small garrison, only a few hundred men. Quite a number of women and children and they've been besieged and Toledo is only a short drive from Madrid you could get into all sorts of places where you could watch the fighting perfectly safely so that becomes a, a focus for the world press and many many newsreels are shot there so it becomes a the whole place becomes symbolic of the contest and both sides need to win it now franco diverts from the main road to Madrid to go and relieve the garrison and there are historians who say that he did this solely to boost his political prestige and to um, help him in his bid to take over the uprising as as its supreme leader and indeed, to uh, become head of state. Yes, this does happen shortly afterwards, um, but I don't think there's any real evidence that that was why Franco diverted. Yes, it was useful, but there are perfectly good reasons for doing what he did, perfectly good military reasons. So that's what a diversion was. So he relieved Toledo. Loses two or three days in the process, heads north for Madrid. What I think you're thinking of is some notion that there could be a wide encircling movement um, rather than a direct attack on the city. Totally impossible. Frank, the, the attacking forces only had about 10,000 men, and you can't surround a city as big as Madrid with 10,000 men. Um, and in fairness to the Nationalists, what they did was um, to, to employ an, if you like, an indirect approach. Um, very difficult to express this without a map. But if you can imagine Madrid as an apple hanging on a tree, if you can imagine... Putting your left hand up to grasp the apple, and you've got your thumb against the bottom of the apple, and your fingers curl around the outside of the apple, the left hand side of the apple, curl around and pluck it. That's exactly what the nationalists did when it came to attacking Madrid. They used some of their troops to pin down the defenders. Um, launching faint attacks on the south of the city, the bulk of their forces actually march round through the old Royal Hunting Park, which um, still um, occupies a large amount of space on the west side of, of of the city, the western side of the city, march through that and then curl through, acro- across the river up there and then, and then advance through the university city on the northwestern side of the city, and from there they could reach boulevards, taking them into the heart of the city centre. <laughs> so there was quite a lot of subtlety in Franco's approach. It was a very sensible approach. Um, it was the only approach which had any hope of winning. Um, Madrid is a battlefield like any other battlefield. you know, to, to understand it, you have to walk it. You have to explore it. You have to understand the lie of the land. Um, and frankly, an army coming from due south would have run into terrible problems. Um, first of all, you have to get through a belt of essentially shanty towns, slum housing, light industry, um and then there's, there's several miles of that, and then you get to the river. Um, now the river is the river that runs through Madrid. is 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 not the Thames, let alone the Amazon, um, or even dare I say the Potomac. Um, it's it's a nondescript little trickle, but <laughs> but where it flows through the city centre, it had been canalised because there was a danger of flash floods in the autumn rains, things like that. So you had this 10 or 15 foot drop to the river and then on the other side you had a 10 or 15 foot upslope, and these are vertical. And then, and, but it's not finished yet, then you have to fight your way up through, up uphill, and it's and it's a one-in-three hill. It's incredibly steep up to the top of the bluff on which the, the bulk of the city sits on. And you have to do that through the, the, the streets of the old, well, not medieval city, I suppose, Renaissance city. Madrid, Madrid dates from about the 15th century. Um, absolutely appalling task, which would have soaked up men um, like anything. Franco only had 10,000 men. And even the militias, the the Republican forces facing him were were essentially militias, who were militarily useless to be blunt. Even even the militias could probably have have blunted his attack. As it is, as it was, he chose to go through open country, around the west of the city, the Costa Campo, the, the Royal Hunting Park, is um basically lightly wooded scrubland um very easy to move around in there's no no it's it's not like you know hacking your way through a rainforest um but you know quite a lot of cover you know you can you can move through it without being seen from a distance then you come out the other side of that head down to the river um and at this point the river isn't canalized so you've got nice easy banks down to each side um it's it's november um the water was the water was low enough to ford um you know it it had been raining quite a lot but it 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 wasn't it wasn't particularly difficult to get across so you could ford the river and then you've got a, a, a nice, fairly easy slope up to the university. Um, university buildings were built on empty step and very little way of vegetation. And they, they, you know, the Republicans could try and defend them, but there was no way they could support each other. They weren't joined together by trenches or anything like that. So basically it was a very very easy route by comparison and then when you got to the edge of the built up area of the city whereas down at the other end you had all these narrow streets you had to fight through you had these nice long straight boulevards dating from the late 19th century um you know think about houseman's paris um which led straight into the heart of the city and would have been very very difficult to block So actually, Franco, yes, in a sense, he tries to, quote-unquote, rush Madrid with such forces as he had on hand, but he doesn't, he does it in in the only way that's militarily sensible. Now, just to go back to He makes a good choice, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Franco wasn't a brilliant general. He wasn't a spectacular general. He wasn't a showy but general. Um, had he, for the sake of argument, been trying to defend Poland in 1939, or France in 1940, or the Soviet Union in 1941, um, he would have been, you know, one of the many generals who was just completely and totally outclassed. He mm-hmm. had no notion, no notion of how to fight a mobile war, um, at least how to fight against. Armored divisions and everything that come with them um but he was pretty good at the sort of wars he was used to fighting and he was certainly good enough to take on such forces as the republic had um and most of the time in the course of the war he does pretty sensible things you know every move is quite logical and There are people who say, well, you know, if if he had launched a blitzkrieg attack like like the Germans and Italians were telling him, well, um, excuse me, but if you want to do things like that, you have to have not just lots and lots of tanks. And he didn't have lots and lots of tanks. Um, He never gets sent more than about 300, and and they've only got machine guns and they've got very light armour. You need not just tanks, you need armour personnel carriers you need self-help guns you need cross-country vehicles of all types you need a level of motorization level of mechanization which the nationalists never ever had and except except you know in those cases where republican opposition just completely disintegrated which does happen in eastern spain Temporarily, in March nineteen thirty-eight, you know they have to go at a fairly plodding pace and and engage in fairly limited operations. Now, yeah, you know, forgive me. You did ask me um, if the successful Republican defence of Madrid was a turning point in the war. Um, Would the war have come to an end if Franco had taken Madrid? Possibly. But, I doubt it. Um, The Republicans had plenty of militias in the rest of Spain. Um, Madrid was actually a very, very difficult place to defend. Um, In the wake of Franco's advance on Madrid from the south, it was almost completely cut off. It was in this finger of territory, surrounded on three sides by the nationalists. Um, Very difficult to supply. Yes, it's possible that the Republic might have, might have suffered such a moral panic that it would have collapsed. But it's also possible that um, the fall of Madrid might have made things easier for the rest of Spain by, by shortening the line and by taking away if you like, the magnet tendency exerted by Madrid. Madrid becomes a sort of symbol of heroic opposition. Madrid becomes or it is becomes a, is, is taken on by the communists as a as a symbol of their commitment to the struggle. It's the communists who control the arms supply. Most almost all of it comes from Russia um where do the communists want to stick the arms well they're, in, they're they're going to be fascinated by madrid particularly as they're they're in a very strong position there politically the net result is that madrid sucks in you know huge numbers of field guns anti-aircraft guns machine guns um it's it's very heavily fortified, you know, you just, you can walk the front today and you can see, you know, large numbers of pillboxes and things like that. Huge amount of effort to limited purpose. Mm-hmm.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The situation in Madrid, I'm sure, was somewhat confusing at that point. Like, how much did the the nationalist forces know about what was happening in madrid did they know for sure that like you know those uprisings had failed early in the conflict and maybe hadn't oh, yeah. stuck
2: around oh yeah yeah they, they 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 knew perfectly well what was going on okay. um apart from anything else so that obviously the republic is is well, republican radio mm-hmm. and the press is very quick to trumpet you know the collapse of the of the risings in madrid um and anywhere else that the the rice Mm -hmm. failed um there were i mean the civilian telephone network was was still working to at least a certain extent (laughs) um and so it was it was possible for people to not always but sometimes ring each other up there were a lot of regional radio stations which were you know, you could at the very least judge that they are Republican or nationalist. And finally, there were, there were indeed plenty of nationalists, sympathizers in Madrid, and some of them undoubtedly, you know, were able to take information to Franco. When, when we talk about a front line in the Spanish Civil War, in some places it does, it does become, you know, Madrid's one of them, it does become a bit like the Western Front in World War One you know, with uh, very dense trench lines and pillboxes and barbed wire and all the rest of it. But in much of Spain, the front line wasn't really a front line at all. It was just a series of of isolated outposts, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes two or three miles apart, and you could just slip through if you could find somebody to guide you. So there were plenty of people who, you know, who, who did get out from Madrid across the lines. Um, not so much when Franca was on the edge of the city because of uh, battles going on, but only a few miles to the north of Madrid. Um, remember I said that Madrid was in this sort of finger of territory. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you went due north, you, you very quickly bumped into Nationalist territory in the mountains north of Madrid. And, you know, they were... If you need a path, if you could find a guide, you could get through them. Further, nationalists knew pretty much what was going on. Okay. Um, so, skipping ahead a bit
1: here and sort of looking at the the conflict as a whole. Obviously, we know that that it ends in defeat of Republican forces. Do you think this is attributable to Republican military mistakes? Or did other factors simply shift the balance of power too much against them during the conflict?
2: Very often, when people talk about the Spanish Civil War, um, the, thing that, the, 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 the things that they come up with, you know, ex- explain the nationalist victory in the Spanish Civil War. Oh, the Condor Legion, 88 millimeter guns. Hitler and Mussolini, poor in resources. Um, and you get a get the idea, very strong idea, that um, the Nationalists enjoyed massive military superiority. Now, I'm not going to say that the Nationalists did not get more aid than the Republicans. They did. Um, but you still have to qualify the aid that they actually got now if you look at germany in the 1930s italy in the 1930s well sort of 1936 anyway were they capable of supporting a major war effort no Um, I mean, Italian war industry certainly wasn't up to it, just in general. German war industry might have been, but of course, German war industry was building everything it possibly could for the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht. Mm -hmm. A lot of what gets gets sent to Spain is pretty second-rate stuff. Some of it was First World War material, Some of it was stuff which dated from before the First World War, which was already obsolete in 1914. Yes, the Germans sent 88 millimeter guns. Um, I believe about 90 of them turn up. It, you know, it's not a war winning force. If you look at the aircraft which is sent um, initially the nationalists sorry the 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 Germans and Italians alike um well they can come up with reasonable bombers but the fighters that they send are hopelessly inferior to the fighters that turn up on the other side um until July 1937 or even a bit later the republicans have air superiority um if you look at well, I mean, I've already talked about how a lot of the guns, the field guns and so forth, since the, the nationalists were pretty old, um, certainly no better than the ones the Republicans were getting. Um, if you look at rifles, machine guns, you know, we're not talking about the sort of stuff that you see the you know, German soldiers running around with in World War II films. We're not talking about MG42s or MG34s or Schmeisser, machine pistols you're talking about again world war one surplus stuff the german stuff was mostly okay the italian stuff mostly wasn't okay and including actually many of their newer weapons i mean uh, you know i I could i could i could spend an entire interview talking about italian machine guns and just how awful they were (laughs) so so actually in terms of of actual material superiority yeah the nationalists were a bit better off they they didn't get more of everything they got they got more of some things they certainly got more in a way of ammunition that is that is certainly true and so they have more strategic possibilities perhaps than the republicans did but I I always said to my students, the way of looking at it was this, that the nationalists got 200% out of every single weapon, every single shell, every single tank, every single plane that they were sent. The Republicans invariably only got 50%. Why is this the case? Partly it's a reflection of the the chaotic political situation in Republican Spain, you know, too many arms got diverted to secondary fronts for political purposes. And um, Madrid becomes a secondary front, basically took up far too much in the way of resources. But also there is a massive, massive fundamental flaw at the heart of Republican military organization. Very soon the Republic realizes it needs a regular army. You know, I will make no, mo- no bones about it. The militias um, which emerged in the revolution in 1936 are just useless you know there's, there's 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 you know it's it's not a very romantic way of looking at it um but if you deconstruct the situation, that is what they were um they were at best playing at soldiers well, if you want to fight a war, you have to do something other than playing at soldiers. you have to be a soldier and The Republicans realise that they need a new army, and most of the political factions in Republican in Republican Spain agree with the notion, and it's a notion which is being pushed forward particularly by the Communists. Um, At this point, I suppose we ought to we ought to have a um, a long discussion of of the Communist position, Um, but let me just let me just say this at this point throughout the communists are bitterly opposed to the notion of revolution revolution has broken out in Republican Spain as a result of the uprising and they want no part of it and they want to put it down that's from a conservative force with a small C so they're all in favor of having a regular army and anybody who was opposed to the revolution wanted a regular army because with a regular army you could put down the revolution. But at the same time a regular army was what you needed to fight Franco. So far so good. The trouble was that the Republic from its very inception had over and over again Shown itself to be an utterly incompetent regime. If you if you unpick the details of its agrarian policy, for example, the idea of land reform, um, it just becomes completely farcical. You know the the hash that they made of it is just laughable. And sure enough, they proceed to make a hash of organizing the new army now forgive me if things get very technical and arcane at this point but sometimes things the significance of things are missed precisely because they are arcane and technical Um, many people who who have worked on on the spanish civil war Majority of people who worked on the Spanish Civil War are not military historians. They're political historians, social historians. Many of them are not interested in war as such. What they're interested in is the interplay of party and faction politics. What they're interested in is the position of women in Republican Spain. Position of women in nationalist Spain. What they're interested in is poster art. Yeah, all of these are interesting, fascinating topics, but they don't necessarily get us very far when it comes to understanding the war. So, this is where things are going to get very, very gritty. If you're going to form an army, you need to choose an organisation. You need to choose the framework on which you're going to, round which you're going to build the army. You're going to, you're going to have to decide on what units you want, and how those units relate to each other. And essentially, um, you're going to have to think about how you build the army's organigram as it's known and typically armies are pyramidal structures in which you have um, right at the top you'll have the german army as such that might be broken down into Army Groups, so Army Group Centre, for example, on on the, the Eastern Front. Army Groups are broken down into Armies. Armies are broken down into Corps. Corps are broken down into Divisions. Divisions are broken down into Brigades. Brigades are broken down into Regiments. Regiments are broken down into Battalions. Have a, essentially, all armies have a pyramidal structure, but they can differ in how they go about that. And the Republicans came up with a totally crazy notion. <laughs> I mean, an, a notion that was completely and totally counterproductive. This is the notion of the so called mixed brigade. Now a mixed brigade, as its name suggests, is a force of let us say about three thousand men if it's at full strength. In 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 a in a ordinary army, divisions are about three thousand sorry, um brigades are about three thousand men, and then three or four of them make up a division which will be nine thousand twelve thousand there okay that's far that's good but in most armies in normal armies you only get infantry brigades or for that matter armored brigades Um, what the republicans did was to say okay these brigades need to operate independently That means that they all have to have their own artillery batteries. They all have to have their own medical company. They all have to have their own signals company. They all have to have their own supply company. They all have to have their own cavalry squadrons so they can carry out reconnaissance. And so what the, the, the Republicans come up with is if you like the notion of a brigade as a miniature army why did they do this because they were thinking in terms of the colonial warfare which had been waged in africa in, in against the moors in the colonial wars and as in most colonial wars you know it, it had been a matter of pu- punitive columns you sent out a column into the blue, and it it went around taking enemy strongholds, burning enemy villages, burning crops, and because it had to operate independently, it had to have all the necessary bits and pieces you need to have to have a functioning military force. That's okay, when brigades operate independently what became clear very very quickly was that these units were not going to have to were not going to be operating independently they'd be operating as part of divisions those divisions would have to be operating as part of corps corps would have to be operating as part of armies but the republicans get stuck with a system of organisation whereby everything, all their resources, are parceled out in penny packets. Um, If you have, for the sake of argument, 50 guns, 50 field guns, if you fire them, as one group of 50 guns, so you you concentrate all the guns in one place, you fire at one particular area of the enemy lines, or alternatively, you split those 50 guns up into 10 groups of five, spread them out, you fire at lots of targets, fire over a wider area, whatever. You still got 50 guns, but have you got the same weight of fire? No, you don't. You need to concentrate. That means in in organisation terms, resources like tanks, resources like heavy guns, well, like any, any guns, actually, apart from the you know, very, very light ones, like anti-tank guns, they have to be held further up the line. You know, a division will have, for the sake of argument, three infantry brigades, and brigade, and so on. net result is that the Republicans come up with a system of organization that wastes weapons, wastes firepower. But it's it's even worse than that. It's not finished yet because (laughs) these units are administratively very complicated. They're made up of lots of different types of soldier. That means that each of them needs quite a substantial headquarters to operate successfully. That means that you're gonna have a lot, a lot of men tied up behind the lines in non-combat roles. Nationalist military organization was much more conventional. Um, and that doesn't mean boring. It doesn't mean regressive. It doesn't mean reactionary. It just means more effective. The, the the nationalists consistently get more out of their weaponry more out of their manpower and and this is a absolute millstone that hangs round the republic's neck throughout the war and which they can never escape from it's really interesting to when
1: uh, sort of learning about those kind of like almost hidden mistakes, like mistakes that, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know about, or maybe it might even be hard to sort of um, find information about that. It's interesting to see how that can affect everything else that happens. What, what you know, could be considered a, a small mistake of how do you organize these things turns in sort of cascades out into huge problems. Yeah. You can see
2: it in terms of conscription as well. Um, because the nationalists were much more savvy in their use of manpower, they actually have to conscript far fewer men than the Republicans do. Um, the Republicans end up having to conscript a far larger number of men for a far smaller military force. Which I...
1: I'm sure doesn't help their political situation at all, given the you know no, divisions no, and problems behind the lines i mean
2: because um the next thing that, that needs to be said and i know that i mean i know time, i'm to controversial territory here um many people and indeed many historians are fixated on the idea that on the one side in this struggle you have the heroic Spanish people, and on the other you have the generals, the bankers, the church, the elites. I'm not saying that that model is completely wrong. I mean, you, you can certainly see the Civil War as a, struck, as a struggle between reaction and progress, even revolution. But what it does presuppose is a Spanish people who are intensely politicised, and a Spanish people who are um, caught up in socialist further, People who um, who were very, very, very strongly politicized. Mm. If you deconstruct the situation, you find the situation is completely different. Um, What you have is a veneer of politicization, you have political organizations. Socialists, communists, anarchists, who had a fairly solid core group of militants who were pretty prepared to do whatever the party told them to do and who rushed off the fighting the militias at the beginning of the war. Then you had the next tier of people. Who were the followers? They joined trade unions because it got them a union card, but they didn't like turning out to meetings, and they're not they're not going to volunteer for the for the war. And then beyond them, you have another tier, which is people who are, frankly, completely and totally ignorant of politics, and they just plod along on a day-to-day basis. And they've got no interest in joining the militias and they've got no interest in the political ideologies of the period. Put all this together, you have a situation in which far from the Republican zone being full of eager young recruits marching off to war, you have a situation where the political leadership is desperately trying to convince the populace to fight, convince them that the struggle is theirs. And frankly, most conscripts on the Republican side, indeed, most conscripts on the nationalist side, were very apathetic, very unwilling to risk their lives very unwilling to be heroes. So when you have a system of conscription which which bites very, very heavily, as the Republican system came to, well obviously they're not going to feel happy about it.
1: I think we're at the end of our time today. Thank you for coming to chat with me
2: today. It's been very enlightening. But so thanks Wesley. Nice to meet with you. And I hope we meet again.